I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare, Series 2, Podcast B, A Midsummer Night's Dream. Shakespeare's comedy, A Midsummer Night's Dream, one of his most lyrical, delves sweetly but profoundly into the mystery of human love. Do we love by choice or by necessity? Do we love this person and not that because of conscious preference, unconscious predisposition, nature? Fate, hormones, sixth sense, social expectation, magic, divine dispensation, more than one of these, all of them? The play does not exactly answer these questions, but it meaningfully and joyfully reconciles us to the irreducible mystery of love. It does so by uniting two settings, six plots, and four worlds into one dreamlike tale told in highly rhetorical verse. The two settings are court and forest. The story moves from the court of ancient Athens into the forest and back again to court. I will be discussing Shakespeare's use of two contrary settings in Series 1, Chapter 6, Podcast 13. The six plots are those of 1. The Four Lovers, 2. The Marriage of Theseus and Hippolyta, 3. The Brawl Between the Fairy King and Queen, 4. The Story of the Indian Boy Who is the Object of Their Contention, 5. The Rehearsals and Performance of the Mechanicals Play, and 6. The Pyramus and Thisbe Story Forming That Play Within the Play. The four worlds are 1. The World of Ancient Greek Mythology, 2. The Fairy Lore of the English Countryside, 3. The idealized English royal court, dressed up as the ancient court of Athens, and 4. The everyday lives of the artisan class of Shakespeare's London, disguised as Athenian mechanicals. Through the elaborate use of rhetorical figures, Shakespeare achieves a beautiful and touching lyricism. It is counterintuitive to us that highly formalized rhetoric should be used to express the thoughts and feelings of love. Heirs of Romanticism, we believe that all true feeling must come straight from the heart in the most natural language possible and that rhetorical devices equal insincerity. But Shakespeare and his audience would have found our most natural speech to be unimaginative and shallow. Even though the last line of Sonnet 1 in Astrophil and Stella by Philip Sidney, reads, Said my muse to me, Look in thy heart and write. That line itself appears in a poem of elaborate rhetorical development. For the Elizabethan audience, elaborate figures of speech were the only medium sufficiently rich and complex to express the realities of love. Madeline Doran writes, the rhetorical patterns are used to strike the note of love. The emotions of love sweep them into the rhetorical schemes. The young people display obvious artifice, and this artifice they pursue not because they do not have feelings, but because they have. Here is an incomplete list of rhetorical devices used in the play. Anadiplosis, anaphora, antanaclysis, Antimetaboli, antistrophe, aphorismus, asteismus, asyndeton, chiasmus, 
conceit, a panalepsis, epizuxis, papalogy, isocolon, oxymoron, paranomasia, plosi, polyptoton, prosopopoeia, stichomythia, solepsis, zugma. If there is interest, I will perhaps eventually do a podcast listing the major figures of speech with illustrations from Shakespeare's work. To express such an interest, email me at the address given below. The title of this play alludes to the ways in which the English celebrated the Eve of Midsummer, the summer solstice and feast of St. John the Baptist, June 25th. The Puritan Philip Stubbs complained that on such occasions, as on May Day and Whitsun, all the young men and maids, old men and wives, run gadding overnight to the woods, groves, hills, and mountains, where they spend all the night in pleasant pastimes, and in the morning they return. He accused them of worshipping Satan in doing so, but Shakespeare does not subscribe to Stubbs's Puritanism. The fairy Puck ends the play by suggesting that if we did not enjoy the experience of the play, we should consider it no more than a dream. But there are also dreams, or pseudo-realities, within the play. The lovers awaken transformed from their Midsummer Eve sleep in the woods. Both Bottom and Titania, or Titania, or Titania, the fairy queen, awaken from slumber imagining their actual experiences to have been dreams. As so often in Shakespeare's plays, here too reality and illusion are set against one another. But in A Midsummer Night's Dream, the levels of reality merge with the various senses in which we think of dreams, meaningful revelations, wish-fulfillment fantasies, artful illusions, and fluff. And in all cases, the theme is love. True, genuine, and natural love on the one hand, and on the other, love that is artificial, illusory, and monstrous. In the frame story of the play, love is the power that causes opponents to come into harmony. The famously rational and just ruler Theseus, who has defeated the Amazon queen Hippolyta in battle, is now to marry her in joy on the occasion of the new moon. But within that frame story, disruptions to love initially multiply. Aegeus has decided that his daughter Hermia must marry Demetrius, though she loves the equally respectable Lysander. Seconding Aegeus, Theseus offers Hermia two alternatives, perpetual virginity in a convent devoted to the service of the chaste goddess Diana, or death. Hermia's bosom friend Helena loves Demetrius, who swore his love to her until he saw Hermia. In the meantime, nature itself is disrupted because the fairy king Oberon and the fairy queen Titania are in mutually jealous conflict over possession of an Indian boy. And love is comically threatened with disruption by the comically inappropriate choice of the tragic love story of Pyramus and Thisbe, based on the tale in Ovid's Metamorphoses, to be performed by the workmen of Athens in celebration of the royal wedding. Love is both the source and the victim of all these conflicts, and Shakespeare, in Act 1, Scene 1, Line 134, has Lysander call upon all previous tales and histories, read or heard, 
to assert aphoristically, the course of true love never did run smooth. Bottom complains that reason and love keep little company together nowadays, the more the pity that some honest neighbors will not make them friends. That's Act 3, Scene 1, lines 143 to 146. However, being a comedy, the play does make reason and love friends, for it ends in reconciliations, healing, and happy marriage. But how? How is this harmony achieved? By what means are all these rough courses of love smoothed? Shakespeare does not take the obvious route of ascribing the resolutions either merely to nature or merely to the magic of the fairies. Nature within is as likely to lead astray as to guide aright, and magic-wielding fairies, like Puck, are as often mischief-makers as harmonizers. Oberon and Titania, though intimate with and tied to nature, are themselves also in unnatural conflict because of competing loves. The real vehicle of healing is the proper use by the wise Oberon of two plants, which represent neither nature alone nor magic alone, but rather a mysterious union of divine and natural powers. The pansy flower, called love in idleness, has the power to cause one to fall in love with whatever one sees when one's eyes have been anointed by its juice. But this is not just a natural power within the plant. This power is in it because, as we find out in Act 2, Scene 1, lines 161 to 172, Cupid's fiery shaft, quenched in the chaste beams of the watery moon, has landed on it. In other words, Oberon has seen what even Puck could not, that the flower's virtue has its source in the invasion of the natural by divine qualities. The formerly white flower, having received love's wound and turned purple, now can make man or woman madly dote upon the next live creature that it sees. And Oberon knows, too, that the arrow that landed upon the flower was not only fiery with erotic power, but also drenched in the moonbeams of the goddess of chastity. It is that arrow, itself a paradoxical union of seemingly divine contraries, which gives to the flower its capacity to evoke irresistible love, whether for the appropriate object, as in Demetrius, or for the inappropriate one, as in Lysander and Titania. Similarly, that effect can be reversed by another herb. Oberon hints, at Act 2, Scene 1, Line 184, that this other herb can remove the charm of the love in idleness flower. But later, in Act 3, Scene 2, Lines 366 to 369, he reveals that this second herb is an antidote not to love, but to error. Then crush this herb into Lysander's eye, whose liquor hath this virtuous property, to take from thence all error with his might, and make his eyeballs roll with wonted sight. Wonted means appropriate. This is why the second herb is not used on Demetrius. The juice of the pansy flower caused him to return to his true love of Helena. The juice of this second herb caused Lysander 
to return to his true love of Hermia. Either may be used for disruption or for healing, and it is Oberon's gift to know the powers of both and to will their proper use in the name of reconciliation, harmony, wonted sight, and natural taste. In Act 4, Scene 1, lines 174 to 176, when the lovers have awakened from their various real or apparent dreams to find the conflicts resolved, Demetrius says that having, as in health, come to my natural taste, now I do wish it, love it, long for it, and will forevermore be true to it. That is, harmony is achieved with the union of natural feeling, conscious desire, and free will choice. This union is the cure to the earlier rejection of true love and results in the appropriate pairing of the right lovers. The union of feeling, desire, and choice also resolves the conflicts between Theseus and Hippolyta and between Oberon and Titania. In the case of Theseus and Hippolyta, reconciliation is expressed not only by the union of conqueror and conquered, but by the union of masculine and feminine attitudes as expressed in their contrasting points of view at the beginning of Act Five. Hippolyta notes the strangeness of the report that the lovers give of their adventures in the forest. The rational Theseus accepts the strangeness of the tales, but not their truth. He says, I never may believe these antique fables, nor these fairy toys. Lovers and madmen have such seething brains, such shaping fantasies, that apprehend more than cool reason ever comprehends. He groups together lunatic, lover, and poet as producers of airy nothing. He cannot believe in the validity of the lover's report about what we, the audience, have seen with our own eyes. Reason seems to be demoting love. By contrast, Hippolyta, a few lines later, asserts that the lover's experience is something more than fantasy and grows to something of great constancy, but howsoever strange and admirable. She accepts the adventure as being real and full of wonder, even though it is inexplicable. Love seems to be demoting reason. In this good-natured conflict of interpretation, Theseus represents masculine reason, logic, and skepticism, and Hippolyta, feminine insight, intuition, and acceptance. And the point is not only that Hippolyta's insight corrects the limited vision of Theseus. In a similar and balancing way, Theseus will later in the scene, at lines 89 to 105, correct Hippolyta by his magnanimous attitude toward the mechanical's performance. The point is that their love and wedding unite their two points of view in a joyful harmony, reason and love made friends. In an equally pleasing parallel, the reconciliation of the royal fairies results in a restoration of the natural succession of the seasons in their proper places. In Act 4, Scene 1, lines 87 to 92, Oberon, waking Titania to the harmony of music, says, Now thou and I are new in amity, and will tomorrow midnight solemnly dance in Duke Theseus' house triumphantly, and bless it to all fair prosperity. 
There shall the pairs of faithful lovers be wedded with Theseus all in jollity. Marriage for All, here celebrated in six lines sharing a single rhyme, symbolizes joyful harmony for all. The play concludes by making the tragedy of Pyramus and Thisbe into a vehicle of celebratory hilarity. Shakespeare transforms the tragic tale into farce and through it into high comedy with the implied contrast between the naivete of the performers and the sophistication of their audience, not only their courtly on-stage audience, but the audience for whom Shakespeare wrote. Most likely, that was a gathering of aristocrats, possibly including Queen Elizabeth, in a manor house to celebrate an actual wedding. Eventually, it was also the public theatre audience for whom we know the play was later performed. As Harold Brooks writes, the artisan's anxiety is part of a major joke, their fear of creating too much dramatic illusion when it is obvious they will create far too little. All art depends on the paradoxical simultaneous experiences of empathy and psychic or aesthetic distance. We must lose ourselves in believing that the characters we are seeing on stage are real, and at the same time, we must remain aware that what we are seeing is art, not life. In a future podcast, Series 1, Chapter 15, Podcast 27, I will discuss these fundamentals of art in some detail. The mechanicals are fearful of their audience's excess empathy. They fear that the lion will fright the ladies, costing the players their lives, and labor to create as much psychic distance as possible. At the same time, they lack any faith in the power of words to evoke empathy so that they feel they must use actors to portray the moon and the wall, since, unlike the actual theater audience, they cannot imagine believing in them based on words alone. The naivete of these mechanicals aspiring to acting, mediated by the light-hearted critical commentary of the on-stage aristocratic audience, causes Shakespeare's own audience to revel in their own sophistication in the midst of their hilarity. Thematically, however, there is more to the farce than the self-approval of the audience. The story being told by the Mechanicals is a tragedy of a sort that might have happened to Hermia and Lysander. Pyramus and Thisbe, too, disobeyed their fathers and ran off to be married against the parental will, and they died for it. So did Romeo and Juliet, about whom Shakespeare wrote in the same year. Here the tragic tale is turned into farce in order to reinforce the relief and the joy of the happy ending for all the lovers in the play, the reconciliation of the young lovers to one another and to the older governing generation. As Theseus and the court point out the naive follies of the performers, they are also enacting a magnanimity that weighs the player's goodwill far above their lack of skill. When Hippolyta observes in Act 5, Scene 1, Line 88, that Philostrate says they can do nothing in this kind, meaning they are not any good at performing a play, Theseus replies, The kind are we to give them thanks for nothing. Our sport shall be to take what they mistake, and what poor duty cannot do, noble respect takes it in might, not merit. The phrase, takes it in might, not merit, 
means measures the gift not by actual merit, but in respect to the capacity of the giver. Compare that with Luke 21, verses 1 through 4, and the proverbial phrase, take the will for the deed. By some, this passage is thought to be a bit of flattery to Queen Elizabeth, who might actually have been in the audience and who prided herself on appreciating the good will of her subjects. But thematically, Theseus is reinforcing the power of love, including the good will of the mechanicals, who wished to please their prince with their performance, however inept. At Act 3, Scene 2, Line 115, Puck has observed, Lord, what fools these mortals be! Because he is right, all of us are in need of the magnanimity of love that Theseus shows to the mechanicals. Once the play has revealed this to us, and its plot has brought into harmony all the forces that have impelled and disrupted love, it remains only for Oberon, in Act 5, Scene 1, Lines 417-420, to to order his fairies to bless every several chamber with sweet peace and safe rest. No analysis of this play can possibly convey its delights better than the poetry of the play itself, and no play of Shakespeare's until The Tempest so perfectly merits all that we mean by the word magical. I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare.